0: Queer Relationships, an IM Clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ plus community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. The Great Resignation has created quite a stir in the world. People are reprioritizing what they want out of life and finding that there is more to life than commuting to a job they don't love to only anticipate a paycheck that won't go very far to then sit in traffic to only do it all again the next day. As I watch the world transition and see the workforce evolve, I have also heard many people express confusion, despair, and even desperation around finding a job that really honors who they are and their destinies. Today's guest, Ann Stout, is a career coach who comes to us with a wealth of knowledge. If you find yourself wondering what job will really produce life satisfaction you don't want to miss today's episode. Let's take a listen.
1: I specialize in the field of career coaching and career counseling, so um, you'll hear me reference that a little bit through throughout this process. Um, but I've been working as uh, really in this field for the last since 2011, so over 10 years, and. Um, have done quite a bit of of different things. Uh, So predominantly kind of my favorite passion area is I really like working with folks um, really from kind of marginalized backgrounds and communities. I think as a queer person, uh, that's something that's, uh, you know, I've noticed how my queer identity has shaped who I am. So I kind of always think of the three areas I'm working with clients are like, who am I, where am I going and how will I get there? Um, That spans both career and life coaching. My credentials, you know, I'm a certified career counselor. I'm a a licensed professional counselor. Um, I have uh, numerous trainings around the coaching space through NCDA. Um, So a lot of the things I will use are um, around storytelling. So uh, taking narrative therapy and branching it out into a coaching space to help um, clients tell their stories effectively in ways that feel empowering and meaningful to them. So um, so yeah, you'll, people that know me know, I kind of love talking about that ethical area between mental health and coaching. And, um, that's, it's, it's one of my favorite passion areas too, because, um, I think coaching can be a lot more accessible from, uh, uh, Privileged standpoint, mental health care is is very expensive. It's something that's typically only accessible in, in urban areas. Um, and as I've mentioned, obviously, a lot of the work I've done has taken a lot of consideration to rural areas where coaching can be a lot more accessible because I don't have to be licensed in that state to provide coaching in that community. Um, so it, it creates a lot more uh, freedom
2: um, and access. And you're also an adjunct professor.
1: Yeah, I'm an adjunct professor, So, um, and I've kind of taught all sorts of different courses, so I've actually taught um, a community ed ed course, meaning for folks in the community who are looking for more direction. I did that for a couple of years, Um, but yeah, I've been an adjunct professor at three different um, universities in Colorado, Um, and uh, I love it. Right now, I teach in the counseling program at um, Metro State University of Denver and um, University of Colorado, Denver, so... Uh, and my students will know me as being a very passionate person, which will probably come through in this podcast. Which
2: is great. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned three really cool questions that kind of make the, they set the tone, they give a backbone to coaching. Do you mind walking us through those? Because I think they're really powerful and they're probably questions that a lot of queer people are asking
1: yeah and i i can't take credit for coming up with these questions they're ones i have been i've heard over the course of my career from my mentors um but i think it is kind of three parts I and mean, we think of it also also like a triangle because they'll all influence each other um but who am i where am i going and how will i get there <clears throat> and depending on if that's like a career coaching lens or a, a life coaching lens or a financial coaching lens or a relational coaching lens like We'll bring that into the table, but so they're very kind of broad questions for that purpose. We would use your goals in mind, depending on what type of coach you're working with. Um, and those types of coaching I mentioned are all ones that I am counsel offers, and so that's why I kind of think about those. But the the you know the biggest piece I think of it, like kind of the foundational part, we'll start with is who am I, <clears throat> and why this is so important is uh, in the world there's just so much noise we are always hearing other opinions. We're hearing advice. We're hearing the media. We're hearing news. Um, uh, The amount of information people take in today compared to 20 years ago is over triple the amount of information we'd get each day. Um, Think of like, you know, your smartphones and things like that. So our brain actually can't even compute how much information we're getting. It's overwhelming. Um, And so how do we know that we really want to take that next step or commit to uh, that relationship or come out to our parents? Um, how do we really know that that's what we want as an individual? So, who we, even you know, the question of who am I, is helping what I think of when I do that work with clients, it's helping them silence the noise around them and listen more to their internal voice. I use a lot of um, contemplative techniques, a lot of mindfulness so just kind of just grounding and saying, hey, how do I know what a yes looks like to me? How do I know? What assurance looks like, and taking that time. So, who am I? I think thinks of like what are our values? What's most important to us? Not again, not what someone tells us we should be, you know, valuing, but what do we find most valuable? Um, it's thinking about our personality styles. So, you might—I have clients who will use things like Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or, um, you know, strengths, Clifton strengths. We all have different language we might use, but this idea of what is our personality style is, does that feel congruent to our personality style, that decision? So like, again, I'm thinking about, you know, I think about how this influence, especially within the queer community of like safety, just because your friend came out in the way they did, doesn't mean that's the right way for you to come out. So knowing who you are mm-hmm. might help, you know, the best way to step out into your truth. So I think of that's the foundation. And as we learn more about that, who you are, that it forms the other parts of the triangle. That's going to help us think about um, where you might be going and what feels the most important to you today. So that <clears throat> that next question of, right, where am I going? That might be that goal of, again, coming out to parents or, um, you know, talking with your boss about a tran- your transition, um, you know, starting HRT or something, right? Something that feels like an important step that you're ready to take. Um, we're going to take those pieces of who you are and we're going to think about how do we want to get there? What feels right for you? And I say we a lot when I'm working with clients, like, I think of coaching as a partnership. Um, the client's the expert on them. They're the one that's walking this every day and living this life. I'm there really to be a resource, um, to be a, an unbiased third party, to talk through things about, to bring some um, tools to help empower that client to make those steps. Because yeah, I can't go out and and come out to their parents. The client needs to feel empowered to do that. If it's the right move for them, right? That's that's how these work together. Um, Maybe parents aren't safe and they're not actually part of client's life. That might be a conversation we start to have. Um, So from there, right, that next piece of, um, where am I going? And then how will I get there? So as you've already started to see some of these things I'm talking about will influence the, how will I get there? So it's kind of a fluid process that I'm always thinking about. And sometimes I'll even draw the triangle with clients and we'll take, um, take time looking at it. And Often I'll ask clients, Hey, where do you feel the most stuck right now? And where do you feel the most empowered? Maybe, you know, so well who you are, um, and you're really just feeling stuck on how you want to get to that next step of where you're going. So that's where we'll focus in. Um, again, you're informing me with your expertise of you. Um, so that's, that's kind of those three questions. And obviously that's, they're very broad. We'll look at a lot of things underneath that, but that's the framework that I approach, um, most of the work. Cause I, I again, if you're engaging in a coaching process is because there's something that you're thinking about a next step, a goal, a movement you want to make or shift in your life. And so I think all those three questions inform, um, whatever it is that's helping, that's kind of leaving you feeling stuck. Or uncertain, or like there, you know, is something missing or different?
2: I think a lot of people approach either therapy or coaching with a kind of this banner question of what do I do? What Mm -hmm. do I do? Am I coming out? Or what do I do in my career? And I think that these questions really break that down. Who am I? Where am I going? And how will I get there? A mentor of sorts. Um, of mine, Richard Rohr, once said, Isaac, you will answer the question, what do I do when you answer the question, who am I? Mm -hmm. And I was really frustrated when I heard that because (laughs) (laughs) I wanted help knowing what to do. And it almost sounded too simple. Mm -hmm. But I am in full agreement with you now, several years later, that when we do focus on this question, who am I? We collect so much beautiful data and knowledge, Mm -hmm. it's almost as though we find the connection to our own inspiration. And as it's totally my language, but we find our connection to our own desire again, Mm -hmm. and that gives us a really beautiful compass. Is that what you're seeing in the coaching process?
1: Yeah, I think that's so spot on. I, I mean, exactly what you're saying like, we find our connection to our own desire, not our mom's desire, not the American dream desire, right? What is our desire? And we're so disconnected from that. That's again, kind of maybe a stereotyping statement, but I think with just how much news we have, how much information we have, how overwhelming it is, um, there's such a busyness today that there's often a disconnect for folks to really know in, in a true grounding within themselves, what is it that I desire? And then a lot of folks that I've worked with, you know, they might have inklings or you know spaces. I think we, I think many of us know at our root what we really want, what we're interested in, what we're motivated by. But there can also be a lot of shame wrapped around that. Oh, I shouldn't want that, or that's selfish of me to want that. And I think of the coaching process, um, how it differs a little bit from therapy is like therapy, we might address that shame and where that root of that shame comes from. I think of in coaching, I think if we think about how to move the block of shame. So we're not necessarily working through any of the roots. Um, Again, therapy is more past-focused coaching, very future-focused. A a trained coach can't, um, uh, again, unless you are working in the state where they're a licensed clinician, if they're also a licensed clinician, uh, coaches cannot um, practice therapy. But, um, what I think of with that is, um you know, with clients, it's like, you know, what is that you know, again, kind of centering into themselves what what does that desire look like within you? Mm-hmm. What might that belief system be costing us? How do we take those small steps again going back to the how do I get there? How do we take small steps to work around that that shame voice or move that shame voice so we can move into that that desire, that inspiration, that that knowing that is already within us, um, and so you'll see, like in coaching, I think of coaching as a very active process, a very collaborative. Um, not that therapy has that space as well, um, but again, you know, instead of focusing kind of on that past and spending time, you know, working through where those the roots of those that that shame voice came from, we're kind of going to say, how do we move through it? Um, And, you know, not everyone, it's not shame for everyone. I just think of that, especially I think within the queer community can come up because of so many years of living in the closet or just not having role models. You know, it's if we think of right in 2015 is when um, same-sex marriage became legal in the United States. Uh, 2020 is when we saw um, uh, final removal, uh, you know, equal protections under the Civil Rights Act Um, For workplace protections for uh, for gender identity and sexual orientation. Again, up until 2020, so not it's you know not even as old as the pandemic is workplace protections for trans and queer folks. So we really don't have a lot of models of what this looks like. So um, I think that's where within the queer community, I notice a lot of times there's there can be uncertainty, there can be shame, there can be um, an unknown because we just don't
2: have there's just so much that living life in a closet does. I oftentimes say on the podcast that even though we come out publicly, we still leave our desires in the closet. Mm-hmm. Kind of the the phenomenon of you can only tolerate so much of me because that's the voice of the closet. And so if yeah. I come out, I might feel a little bit more liberated in that way, but I I fully, holistically cannot come out. So what I really want still stays in the closet. Mm-hmm. And I hum and tiptoe and, and poke at it, but never engage it. And I feel like coaching is this really beautiful process that helps us go back and grab that very precious parcel mm-hmm. and put it to use. I just watched um, King Richard. It's a movie about mm. uh, Venus and Serena Williams and the family and their dad and all the sacrifices that their mom and parents made. And it's such an inspirational movie but what really strikes me about that is the process of coaching that it becomes so minute you know for them in the movie it's this open stance versus closed stance the the slight rotation in the wrist and like all of these really fine tuned things that really make something successful and i think getting in touch with our desires as queer people is so important because it's the fine tuning of saying I want to help people, but then is that nursing? Is that therapy? Is that physical therapy? Is it massage therapy? Is it <laughs> financial? Mm-hmm. And to really find those nuances and to really unearth or maybe what's in the subconscious and coaching helps bring it up to consciousness, mm-hmm. which is really, really liberating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and again, you know, why I'm passionate about coaching is um it's it's can be so much more accessible because we're not initially looking through the root of of some of those pieces. It's a faster process. You'll often work with a coach much less time than um than therapy. Um, You know, my average coaching clients I might have actually for only about eight months um, to a year if that. Um, Whereas, you know, therapy clients I might see much longer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's, you know, uh helpful to think about just in the sense of like, because it's a financial commitment. You know, coaching isn't covered by insurance. Um, it's not necessarily a regulated field. Um, I, you know, our coaches at I am Counsel are trained, um, have uh coaching or again counseling social work backgrounds, um, and are trained on their fields of expertise, which I think is is really important when you're seeking out a coach. Um, but because of uh, kind of the way it's set up, you know, I, um, I have family all across rural Kansas and I, um, you know, talk with them sometimes about, you know, someone in their community who is, um, doesn't have any resources. There's no mental health resources even in that town, um, let alone resources that are safe for the queer community, you know, and I, I'll get family members reaching out to me and they can't seem, you know, and they say, how do I make this referral? Who do I, And, you know, it's like helping them try to find um, therapy resources is almost impossible. Uh, You know, with the, thankfully with telehealth, they can find some options, but it's nothing in their, in their homes, you know, community, but with coaching, they can connect with anyone around the world actually. So we, you know, we can connect with them. We can meet with them via, you know, the beauty of technology and come in and have a face-to-face, you know, a a virtual uh, appointment with them and, engage them in ways that, again, I think therapy can kind of leave behind. Um, I think there's a, 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 I recognize that could come off as sounding kind of um, negative. I think there's a a huge importance to being licensed in a state you practice and we have to do that. So we're mindful of all the state laws. There's no, that each state makes their own laws um, and that's why that happens. And so that's really important, but and we can edit that out if uh, that's
2: that oh, sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was something I was thinking about. I find that for me, my profession is something I do for a paycheck. Absolutely. But for me, I feel lucky because it is definitely something I feel like I was called to do or destined to do, or I just knew somewhere in the fiber of my little bones that this is the chair I'm supposed to sit in. I don't think that's a common experience for a lot of people. And I know that when we strike upon that, when we find that thing that really jives for us, it's not only professionally liberating, but there is a lot of personal beauty that can be found there. How have you seen that? maybe play out in the lives
1: of your clients? Yeah, it's, it's very true. So that piece about it's, it's not a normal thing to like, just feel totally enraptured by the work you do. Um, I will say it's becoming more and more common. So looking at it from like a a generational stance, a lot of the silent Generation, so that would be maybe grandparents or, um, that's before boomers. So, uh, um, could be parents or or grandparents of many of our listeners. Um, it is the Silent Generation folks. A lot of times, work for them was a means to provide, and there's a reason we kind of call them the Silent Generation for a variety of means. But um, generationally, work was very different for them. And then we have Boomers who. A lot of I mean, my background, my bachelor's degree is in history, so I'm going to take you through a little history lesson. Um, I I love looking at the generational understanding of of how we understand values and work and and those types of things. But um, essentially, boomers they benefited from um, you know that's the time and era of um, post World War two, we've got some economic shifts. We've got the great society that's going to be towards later of the boomers, um, which is like where we get, we call it the great society, or sometimes it's, you'll hear it called like the alphabet soup. This is where we get programs like WIC. Um, so women and children, um, kind of what we think of like food stamps and, and a lot of different other types of things. Um, a paycheck actually typically at that point, you know, could pay for, and sustain a family. So you could be a manager of a grocery store, a local grocery store, and make enough to support your family at home. And, you know, so for boomers, they kind of gave this all to this career because it provided them a lot of financial mobility that we hadn't seen previously. And I'm like really simplifying a lot of this. But where we start to see this and why we see younger generations shift away from this is we see recession after recession. So um, in the 80s, there's a recession. Um, there's, you know, like just like small dips in economic market. That's very common. We're not talking about like the 2009 or 2008-9 recession, um, but lots of dips in economic um movements. And so we see Gen Xers, um, and millennials, children of, of, um, boomer parents who saw their parents give everything to their work and lose their jobs. And this creates a lot of anxiety. So Gen Xers, especially have a lot of like, kind of like my career is not meant to fulfill me, but I'm also not giving my all to my career. We'll see that more on Gen Xers. And then we see millennials who are saying like, hey, I actually want my career to fulfill me because I've seen how unhappy this has made generations of workers before me. And I know that my work will not have my back, Um, especially if you think of most millennials. We look at millennial generation like 1980. Some people say 95. Some people say 2000. The, where the crux of that, if you think of like coming to age, is right around their prime workers in that 2009 recession. So, either graduating college, you know, in the beginning of their career, and, you know, just saw, hey, I thought I was supposed to hit all these milestones and, and I would be successful just like my boomer parents. And I'm not. I can't afford that house. I can't afford this. Um, or I've got student loans. Again, in the same time period, college has gotten more expensive because there's more expectation of what we call wraparound services, so providing mental health services and so on, and we're not publicly funding it anymore. So actually most public, I shouldn't say most, but like I think of some key public institutions I've worked at have almost no state funding, if at all. Um, So where this happens then is we see from millennials and Gen Zers, you know, Gen Zers obviously are just now coming up into the workplace. Um, this desire to make um, meaning with their life, whether it's through career, through relationships, through their online presence, but have meaning be a huge part of their life. Um, because again, we know that at the end of the day, um, a career won't have our back, uh, a job, an employer um, isn't going to be able to take care of us. We saw that again with with these economic trends. Um, we're seeing that again with the pandemic. So long story short, I, a lot of the clients I work with want to find meaning in their life through every aspect. So again, relationally, um, through their career, uh, through all these different components. And, um, I think that's kind of comes back down to like, we're probably not going to have every pot full at all times. There's, there's, um, Kind of a realisticness of that that's that can leave an emptiness of striving like we're just striving for this. But understanding, so it'll talk about kinds of like, where's the compromise? Where where do you not compromise? What are your non-negotiables? If you've ever worked with me, you've heard me say that before. I I say, we're building your measuring stick um, because that's how you're going to measure the decisions you make in life. Whether it's again, to stay with a partner, to move for a position, to decide what house you might want to buy. That all goes back to the idea of who you are, where you're going and how will you get there? So if we build that measuring stick, and like knowing again over life you will change you might have kids you might get married you might um lose a beloved friend or family member those things shape us and shift us so typically we kind of say like research is that we don't change you know deeply in our core so much as we get to adulthood but you are also always changing as a person your values will shift and change your desires will shift and change so when I work with clients to build that measuring stick, I, I also talk with them about how do you adapt that measuring stick? How do you check in with yourself to know, does your career give you meaning? Maybe your career is a place, maybe your your, your work is a job right now because your home life is giving you so much meaning. And you need a job where you can be home more. Um, and again, we saw that, I saw a lot of awareness around that with the pandemic where people are saying, is it worth it to me to be out in public for this type of paycheck when I have a, a person at home who is immunocompromised and um, so clearly you can see, I, I get on this soapbox about this because this is important to me, but knowing that it's not, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Um, and I'm kind of laughing thing about this because I was just listening to a podcast earlier this week about uh, the all or nothing marriage, which if you're not familiar, it's a book by, um, a researcher and, uh, I was listening to a podcast featuring him about how even we approach marriage and relationships from this all or nothing approach. And that's not a bad thing is kind of what he's saying, but it is, there's a lot of stakes, there's a lot, um, you know, um, the high stakes game, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing the same thing with career. We're seeing the same thing with, you know, with owning property. And so that doesn't mean that that's a wrong thing. Um, But in, you know, kind of echoing even just what that author says is, it's this aspect where how do we diversify? You know, our marriage can't necessarily be all or nothing. Our house can't be all or nothing. Our career can't be all or nothing necessarily. It could be And sometimes we find that diamond in the rough and it's amazing if we do, it can be so deeply fulfilling, but there's also, there's only so much we can control. So how do we move and diversify just like we might diversify our portfolio of funds, um, our money, how do we diversify where we're getting our meaning in life? So from friendships, from relationships, from a job or career, from an animal in our life, you know, our pets to, our hobbies. So how that's kind of the work I talk about with clients is you're a multifaceted person. So how do we diversify that over all the different areas you live in that are important to you?
2: I kind of am finding myself thinking a couple of things. One, coaching it's just such a sacred process. I wonder if there's the conception out there that therapy is top tier and coaching is somehow um, like second rated, you know, mm-hmm. like, Oh, you got a coach, but not a therapist. Poor thing. <laughs> no. Um, but in this way, I do feel like there is so much wisdom behind career coaching. Um, and, and the goals of it aren't necessarily to go backwards and heal, which is the goals of therapy. But for coaching, it almost sounds like identifying goals and moving forward, but with this really profound type of liberty, like this Mm -hmm. authenticity you tap into that spurs you forward, which just sounds amazing. And with this kind of diversifying, if you will, or this diversity of satisfaction, I think that it, it sounds like what you're saying is coaching isn't necessarily about finding the job that's going to be your destiny, like I feel like mine is, but almost finding the life satisfaction wherever it wherever it comes from for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you touch on that, um, that you know, sacred work. Um, one of my career mentors and heroes and birthday twin, um, Spencer Niles, once said uh, in a training I was in, um, career work is sacred work. Mm. And, um, you know, uh, he has such an interesting life history. He actually was training for the priesthood. Um, and I can't remember exactly what ended up happening that he, oh, I think he desired, again, it goes back to who we are, where we're going, how we we'll get there. I think he had a deep desire to get married and he couldn't do that in the priesthood. And he was like, if I have this desire, then this means that it's, it's likely you know, not the right fit for me. And if I got that wrong, Spencer, I'm sorry, but that's, that's my (laughs) remembrance of that. And, and so, right. Like that doesn't mean, you know, he found meaningful work. Uh, he has, you know, he's, um, written, he he's actually got a really beautiful theory he's been working on. Um, that's one of our, I think one of our most prominent theories that addresses the holistic view of life and career. Um, but, uh, you know this idea of this this work is sacred work and I, there is a lot of stigmatization around coaching versus therapy. And I think a big part of that is, you know, because I was mentioning earlier, coaching isn't regulated. Um, and so what that means as a listener, you might be like, what does that mean to me? Um, it does mean that anyone can provide coaching. So there is an aspect on your part of, you know, doing, um, you know, I'd encourage you if you're looking at a coaching organization, researching. So one of the top coaching um, trainings in the country is ICF, International Coaching, and um, I think federations what the F stands for, uh, that's who will train coaches. Um, you'll also find many, many mental health professionals will go a coaching route. Um, I actually have many friends and colleagues who I opted to never get a licensure and, and to stay in the coaching world because, um, because licensure actually can be really, um, it can really tie your hands on a lot of things from a legal and ethical perspective. Um, whereas in coaching, again, we can be a lot more collaborative. We can be a lot more future focused, um, and really, you know, empowering clients to kind of make immediate change and action. So you'll see again, many, um, there are quite a few of uh, mental health professionals. And again, a lot of our staff at I am clinic, um, and, you know, also bring their expertise to I am council, um, which is, uh, you know that same knowledge that's the same that same skill set if you find that you really do want to get to the root of that the the past therapy is going to be a better fit for you coaching isn't going to do that work but um yeah it's whether it is you know empowering a client to find that their their sacred seat in a career and, and, and you know and um or in a relationship or a space, I think a big a big part of it is actually just helping clients find their knowing of what feels right for them in this moment in time. Um, you know, decision-making is a constant cycle. You might feel right about a decision today, but again, tomorrow you'll have more information and that decision could change. This go all goes back to my measuring stick of how do you sit in the comfort and discomfort of knowing that change is, is going to continue happening around you because um, uh, the opposite of change, right, is stagnation, and we don't want that either. Um, so even though it can feel scary to be stagnant, I think for many people, it feels a lot scarier. Absolutely. So I don't know if that really got to your
2: question, but... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> One of the things that I think... Let's say that there's a handful of queer people out there saying, Ray, I know exactly what I want to do in the world. I'm, I just feel too much shame, or mm-hmm. I'm too afraid. How could coaching help? What resources do you pull in? What might be some things they could use to maybe get started?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Kind of first and foremost, I would, I love talking to those clients just to get a sense of like, is coaching or therapy a better fit? Um, And especially if, you know, um, kind of like thinking about that shame voice, depending on where it's at and, and kind of what that is, like, A lot of the work I'll do with clients is just doing some mindfulness. So I I like to do a lot of contemplative um, uh, and mindfulness work. And I use a lot of uh, narrative approaches or storytelling approaches. So what this looks like with a client experiencing, you know, um, shame. I might try to say, you know, like kind of working with a client and from a coaching perspective, um, how this might look is uh, a technique I kind of, I kind of often will use is um, kind of uh, getting a client kind of grounded into themselves and find the root voice of, of their own inner champion. So, you know, finding within themselves, um, where's the voice saying I'm good enough or the voice saying I've got this, or I can achieve these dreams or whatever it might be. And I know just over a podcast that can sound hokey, but it's, it's about kind of actually finding again, where that yes feels like in the body. And, and this comes from a, a mentor of mine, Linda Fischet, she's a local practitioner. Um, she used to teach up at Naropa, um, but kind of taking this contemplative approach around really knowing within ourselves where that noise, again, that externalized noise is kind of removed because a lot of that shame comes from an externalized noise. So again, in coaching, I'm not getting to the root of the voices of those shame. And maybe again, it was a parent who bullied a child for being queer or whatever it might be. I'm not, we're not going to actually go and do reparative work around that. That would be counseling. But what I'll do is help the client find that own internalized um, champion within themselves. And then uh, a lot of the work I might do is how do we take small steps? So shame or anxiety can make this feel very overwhelming. I have this dream I want to do. I know who I want to be in the world but it feels really overwhelming to go out and live that. Well, what's one small step I can do? So I will, um, you'll you'll notice I'll almost finish every session with um, a kind of a goal setting technique of looking at like what's something we're going to work on this week or this next two weeks. And this is where, again, I I think I come alongside and partner with the client. You We can all set our own goals. I'm there to help scaffold them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might say, well, my goal is this week that I want to... Um, you know, I want to have an authentic conversation with a coworker about, about who I am. And I want to mention that I have a, a boyfriend, you know, if you're a same sex partner, I should say, um, i a real with a female sounding voice. That might not make sense, but um, so, you know, a same sex partner or something, you know, you want to be basically kind of authentically share your story in a way that would kind of, as a queer person might out you. um again, you know, uh, some people say as queer people would come out all of the time. And those people say it, everyone has a little bit of a different philosophy on it, but So, okay, if that's your goal, what I might work with a client around is like, you know, how I I will use some scaling questions, like on a scale of one to 10, how anxiety producing does that feel right now? Or, you know, let's just talk about that. Let's rehearse that conversation, you know, on a scale of one to 10, um, how much fear do you feel right now? Or something like, I'll kind of just like name an emotion that I've heard them talking about. If it's high, then I say like this, does it seem, you know, like, okay, that's a nine, I'm wondering, is there a different way that we approach this goal? Maybe a smaller step, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's, we ask that person about, um, and, you know, maybe through the conversations, like, maybe I just want to ask this coworker about, um, a question about themselves, And that's kind of where we get started. So, um, it's hard to, it's going to be unique for every single client I work with. So it's hard to actually frame out what that technique would look like, but it's, it's a lot of kind of using, um, a lot of here and now, just like really understanding, um, who that client is again that's that kind of that narrative approach like that that's their story they're living it how do we scaffold and make it feel really attainable um and so that's why I think coaching over time a lot of the clients I you know uh, I use the term graduate uh because as we work together they you know again as you have that measuring stick as you have that ability to listen to your own internalized voice and silence the noise You'll, you, you'll need coaching less and less. You'll get. To, you're going to continue to step out into your truth more and more, um, in ways that are safe for you. Again, this is never a process where you should be putting yourself in, in a place where you're unsafe, mm-hmm. um, meaning you know questioning or going against your own boundaries. So we will do boundaries work even in coaching. And so as you move through that and get to that space. You, you, you'll find you'll need coaching less and less because you're living that authentic life that you wanted to create and you've created it over the course of time mm-hmm. um, in a way that actually felt a lot more manageable.
2: I often tell my clients this, and I, th- I really do believe in it, but it's my job to work myself out of a job to equip you to not need me. And that's the whole point of a coach is mm-hmm. say, I'm here to help you perfect the skills that then you can take and... Go on your beautiful, merry way,,
1: uh, if you're a listener listening at home and you're you're working with any sort of mental health professional or coach who's not actively working themselves out of a job, um, I will say, uh, and I always make this distinction. you know, psychiatry that's a little bit different. your're' your doctors, you will always see those folks in your life. But most counselors we were we are working to try to work ourselves out of a job because um, at the end of the day, just like you're saying, like, our, our clients we want them to be empowered to live their own authentic lives
2: mm-hmm. yes for sure one book that i am thinking of right now that i want to kind of mention is um crossing the unknown sea by david white and he spells his last name with the y instead of an i in White.
1: yes i've seen him speak before
2: uh, he's just a gem like he's he's a poet so he speaks poetically and his books are beautiful but i can't put them down <laughs> yeah But one of the things that he does say in his book when he was transitioning from being an employee to kind of a full-time poet, if you will, is doing one thing every day. And then after a year, you can turn around and say, I just did 365 things to get me Mm -hmm. towards my goal. And I really do believe in that, especially when we're looking at coaching. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm working with a personal trainer right now and to see the progress, it's not overnight, but the consistency of working with that coach, it adds up. Yeah. And I, I just so believe in the coaching process, not only because it allows us at, at all this queer staff, we have I am clinic to work with people no matter where they are in the world. So that's the number one piece of coaching. But two, so that they have access to kind of the life satisfaction that anybody else has. And of course, I will fight tooth and nail to make sure every queer person has access to that. Um, and I know that you are as well. (laughs) One thing that I do find particularly fascinating about your wisdom, and I do mean that honestly, is just the way that you're so cognizant about um, at least the laws here in Colorado and sometimes even federally, um, for the um, protections of queer people and trans people, dead naming in the application process, um, what names you have to put where and how to kind of navigate some of the more sensitive issues from an HR perspective of being queer in the workforce. Um, do you mind if I was a young trans kiddo just out of college and I didn't want to put my dead name, even though it still might be my legal name on an application, how would I move forward with that? What's, what do I have access to?
1: Yeah, this is an area I'm incredibly passionate about because unfortunately, like what we know is discrimination happens, implicit bias. So again, like this idea of unconscious bias is one of the big contributors to, um, how people get screened out in the, in the job search process. Um, this is why often actually one of the top ways to find a job is through someone, you know, because it has nothing to do with like, um, you know, parent, mom, dad, it's, it's usually a third degree or more, um, separation. So like your friend introduced you to their aunt who introduced you to their coworker who gives you an interview. Um, it's because there is, you know, like that there's a fear of the unknown. So when you become a known candidate, things feel a lot safer. And so what that means is that, is a especially as a, a trans person or as transgender folks applying for positions Um, The name change process is time consuming and can be costly. So um, there is an aspect, right, where you might have a legal name that's different than your preferred name. And really, I think of like in your job searching process, there is already so many places where you don't have a lot of power, right? So like you are looking for a job, meaning someone else has power. They have a job that you are looking for. They have income you are seeking, um, and so I'm all about how can you maintain as much power as possible in this process. And so, your resume, any, and this is true for every single person in the United States. This is U.S. based culture. So if you're listening not in the United States, I would encourage you to um, get to know customs in your in your home country. And fun free fact: there's a resource called Going Global. You can actually usually access it through your Department of Immigration or your local library. So the U.S. Department of Immigration pays for Going Global. So you as a citizen can go log in um, or you don't even have to be a citizen, but you can just go through the, their website. But just search Going Global. You'll probably find a, a workaround to get to the portal that's, that's um, uh, paid, again, through your library or through your Department of Immigration. But they actually maintain resume facts for almost every con- major country in the in the world. So... This is this information. If you're a listener not in the U.S., this is this is really only true for the U.S. Um, but in the United States, a resume is not a legally binding document. So what does that mean for you? That means you can put your preferred name on your resume, That's and this funny. is yeah, this is not, this is great for our trans folk, our trans clients. This is great for just every single person. Um, maybe you have a preferred name that you go by. That is a shortened version of your name, or you go by a middle name. I always say, what name will you know when someone calls you on the phone? Cause that's the most common way they're going to invite you for an interview. Um, if someone calls you on the phone, what name will you answer the phone to? So if you get dead named in that process, as someone's inviting you to an interview, i I imagine that would cause a lot of internal internal um, turmoil. Uh, turmoil. Um, and so putting the name you prefer to go by on your resume, and it is not a legally binding document. You should always be truthful on your resume to the best extent possible. So if you're being true about the name you prefer to go by, then you're following kind of the rules, so to speak, of a resume. You will have an application, and that is a separate document. So most mid-sized and larger companies. So this is not going to be true of companies that might be like 50 people or smaller, 20, 25 employees or smaller. Um, But most companies over a certain size in the United States have to follow what's called equal employment opportunity law. And so they will have an application process that goes separately to HR. That is where you do usually have to put your legal binding name. It will say, what's your legal name? Are there other names you've gone by? And that kind of information. That is a confidential document that goes to HR. It really um, and truly shouldn't be going to the hiring committee. They shouldn't have any knowledge of of that information. Um, Every company will work a little bit differently. So sometimes, but again, that's usually the document that HR is going to, you know, pull your background check. Um, And I can tell you again, as an employer, we don't usually see the background check or a hiring manager. We don't see the background check. We're told by HR what the background check pulled up like. We saw some flags around trust. You know, this is a since this has to do with money, we're not sure you should move forward with hiring. Um, we'll see that if you have um, uh, that will only come up if there's uh, if you've been convicted of a crime around theft. So, like, that's Perfect. like well, I know what that language looks like. So, realize I'm probably giving more information than what you need, but just know your resume is not a legally binding document. You can put your preferred name. Um, so for myself, my name is Ray. My middle name is Anne. If you grew up with me, you knew me as Ray Anne. That's what my family always called me because I was bald until I was about four and wore my brother's hand me down So no one knew my gender identity and I do identify as female. And so um, I actually will put Ray Anne on my resume so people understand that I'm female identified because I don't want to get misgendered in the interview process. Um, now, there have been times I've put just right because I know that male privilege can carry me into places that um, female that my female identity might not get me into. Um, so those are ways we can actually work our, again, take back some power in our resume process. So I love to geek out about this. If you're a client I'm interested in career coaching, a lot of folks don't know this, but again, because I work with who am I, where am I going and how will I get there? I do full wraparound services, so I will help a client explore who they are I'll help a client, even with the nuts and bolts of writing a resume, you know, creating their resume, creating their interview materials, um, what they want to say, um, any sort of application documents, all of that. So usually a session, um, career coaching is a little different than mental health coaching. I usually will meet with a client and then I dedicate at least a half hour in between sessions to work on your behalf on some of those things that we've talked about in session, whether it's again, reviewing a resume, doing some research on where you might be interviewing and so on. So, um, it's, it's kind of a little bit of different than what you'd experience if you um, do, uh, you know, therapy where it's usually that's the session and it's kind of a 50
2: minute session and you're done. So, If there is a young, let's say, I don't know, 22 year old lesbian in rural, in, in the rural South who just feels so trapped and doesn't know where to begin for career coaching, what advice might you give to her? If you had 30
1: seconds. Ooh, 30 seconds. I think I'd start, where do you feel the safest? And where do you feel the most like yourself? And safety, I don't mean just physical safety. I mean, psychological safety. I mean, someone who holds your story and holds it sacred, just like we're talking about today, Um, because we are all sacred beings. So where do you feel the safest, the most seen, and it doesn't, that might not be in a career. That might not be. It might be with a friend, a parent, a loved one. You might say, "I don't have anyone that I feel that way about right now." And I would say that would be where you want to start. Is how do we find that one person? Um, they're out there because you are likely that one person for someone else in your life. We don't always see it. Um, we're too close to it sometimes when when things are tough. Um, but where do you feel the most safe? And where do you feel the most alive? Um, They might be the same place. They might not. And from there, I would say if there's a person or, you know, a few people that you feel safe with, I would say, you know, I would, I would, this is something I'd really want to talk with the client about before I'd encourage you to actually do this, make sure it's the right fit for them. But, you know, could you,
2: with one of those people share about what makes you feel the most alive with them? just one person. And again,
1: I'd want to know if if, if you know, asking yourself if you hear that you're like, "Oh gosh, that feels really overwhelming." You know, again, I'd say on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being low and 10 being like, "Ah!" You know, if it feels 5, 6, might might be a great step. If it feels above a 6 or 7, before you take that step, I'd say, what's one thing you can do to bring it down just a just a half step? So maybe it's that you take a nice bubble bath beforehand, or you watch uh, an episode of Sex Education or something that makes you, you know, brings you joy. Um, and the reason why I ask that question, what makes you feel most alive, is that's a question around a that's per- about who you are. So if you can find a person you feel safe with to talk about, to externalize it and process it, that's already you've already done your first step of coaching.
0: Who am I? Where am I going? And how the hell will I get there? Three poignant questions we all ask ourselves from time to time. These questions not only help us find stability in life and shore up our peace of mind, they also help us deepen in self-knowing. As queer people who enter the workforce, we all show up with varying degrees of privilege, Entering the job market might be so easy for some that they land in a job out of convenience rather than true assessment, while it may be completely overwhelming for others who get stuck wondering how they will survive in the workforce, let alone apply for a job. I am certain that our desires, our emotional cravings are our compasses. And as we take note of all the cravings we have and understand what the cravings are designed to satisfy and what they are designed to produce, we naturally come to see who we are, where we can go, and exactly what traits we possess that can get us into our final position of true satisfaction. In this light, career coaching isn't only about finding the right job. It also helps us build a foundation of knowing who you are, what capacities you possess, and what faculties will activate from within you. This foundational knowing will help guide you to the job that not only honors your whole personhood, but also one that makes it come alive. I know that a lot of us spent years, major portions of our lives trapped in a very tiny closet where people could neither see us, invest in our true self, nor help mold our developmental process so that we could easily become self-confident queer people. It is because I know just how silent our closets were and just how empty we might feel coming out of those closets that I want to make sure you hear it's your turn to shine. And I want you to know just how shiny, capable, worthy, and special every square inch of your essence is. Who am I? I am beautiful, I am competent, and I am capable. Where am I going? To a place where my truest self is honored and alive. And how the hell will I get there? By knowing who I am first until next time queer Relationships tips is a podcast sponsored by I M clinic a counseling practice devoted to the lgbtq plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available i am clinic create the love lives and relationships you crave Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at IM Clinic. That's IAM Clinic.